Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from across Ukraine discuss the latest diplomatic and political updates around the world, and look deeper at the tensions between Viktor Orban's Hungary and the European Union. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 29th of January, one year and 338 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor, Francis Durnley, and Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. So a Ukrainian drone attacked a Russian oil refinery about 200 kilometres northeast of Moscow early this morning. Reports coming out in the last few hours. Prominent Russian telegram channels Baza and 112 said the drone was aimed at the Slavent Yanos oil refinery in Yaroslavl about 7 a.m. local time. They claimed, uh, well, they said there's no casualties, didn't comment on the damage. But regional governor Mikhail Yevryev said there was no fire, no casualties and anti-air defences had shot the drone down. So we don't know at the moment if it's actually done anything, but they are openly talking about a drone attack there. It continues the steady drumbeat, actually, of recent months, really, of, of Ukraine attacking Russian infrastructure, energy infrastructure, deep, 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 deep inside, inside Russia. And um, whilst this might not have had had any effect directly on the on the facility it certainly has an effect on the, the psyche of the of russians that know that this has happened and also of the uh, of the people in the kremlin and just as we say well actually if we say russian advances in the east for example it's only a few hundred meters a week that all adds up which is correct i think it's also fair to say well you know these attacks on Russian energy infrastructure, if we say, say one every every other day, two a week, three this week, four last month, what have you, I mean, that adds up as well. And I'd be really interested, we should maybe get um, Sue back on, really to, to do a, a, a deep dive into where do we think we are then with um, Russian energy infrastructure overall, because it has been going on reasonably successfully for quite a number of months now. Anyway, speaking of drones, 
Captured Russian drones prove to the West that sanctions against Russia are not working, according to uh, the spokesman for Ukraine's Air Force, Colonel Yuri Inyat, chat we, uh, we refer to a lot. He said Western components had been found inside Shahid drones. Obviously, Shahid's manufactured in or for, originally from Iran. We think they are now manufactured under license also inside Russia. But Colonel Inyat saying this proves that Russia is managing to bypass sanctions and acquire the sophisticated components necessary. He said the most valuable thing these drones can reveal is whether their design has been changed. The main benefit is the ability to take the surviving remains and once again show our partners whose components Iran and Russia are using in their weapons destined to kill Ukrainians in order to strengthen the oversight of sanctions. Again, we've been we've talked about these sanctions at length and I've repeatedly pointed folk to the uh, that amazing a very good investigation in the Financial Times a couple of months ago, maybe early December, about about sanctions busting. So we will keep the focus on there. Now then, on some numbers. Since the start of the full-scale invasion, Russia is thought to have lost 2,600 tanks and around 4,900 other armoured combat vehicles. That comes from Britain's MOD this morning. They say ground forces, Russians, Russia's ground forces, probably lost 40% fewer assets in 2023 compared to 2022 but they put that down to the positional nature of the combat and russia's defensive posture now defense intelligence so that's part of the uh, mod here in london they say russia has been on the offensive offensive since october last year in eastern ukraine and that has led to an uptick in attrition since then defense intelligence estimates russia has lost 365 tanks and about 700 other armoured combat vehicles, but only achieve minor territorial gains. However, they do go on. Russia is thought to have the capacity to produce 100 tanks a month. I comment for me there is the quality may be questionable there. They're probably old, refurbished. Therefore, I expect them to have little in the way of sophisticated optics, armour and so on and so forth, but still 100. And MOD here saying that will enable Russia to continue the level of offensive activity they are producing at the moment for the, in their words, foreseeable future. Now, the next one. White House insiders have been speaking to the Washington Post. They say Ukraine is too weak to launch another counteroffensive this year and should concentrate on defence. So the Washington Post reports officials have told them last year's counteroffensive had exhausted Ukraine and was shaping military plans for 2024. I think that's probably accurate. I think we've spoken about this before. A senior official speaking on uh, condition of anonymity told The Post, it's pretty clear that it will be difficult for them to try to mount the same kind of major push on all fronts that they tried to do last year. I think that is that is fair and a sensible assessment. We think at the moment this war is in a in an industrial phase, industrial and political phase. It's like who can rearm, re-equip, retrain quicker, work in the politics, uh, of which more more a bit later, faster than the other side. Now then, a couple more for me. Ukraine has uncovered a massive corruption scheme worth more than uh, $40 million that's defrauded the country out of military supplies. So the SBU, that's Ukraine's security service, speaking over the weekend, speaking on Saturday actually, they said they'd discovered a mass procurement fraud involved in the purchase of nearly 100,000 mortar shells. The agency said an investigation had exposed officials of Ukraine's Ministry of Defence and managers of the arms supplier Lviv Arsenal, who stole nearly 1.5 million hryvnia worth in the purchase of shells, hryvnia being obviously Ukraine's currency. 
Now, the fraud, which was confirmed by Ukraine's defence ministry, is said to involve former and current high-ranking officials in their MOD and heads of affiliated companies. Five individuals from the ministry and the arms supplier have been served notices of suspicion, which is the first stage in Ukrainian legal proceedings. And one suspect has been detained while trying to cross the Ukrainian border to get out of the country. The root of this issue is a uh, contract for shells that was agreed with Lviv Arsenal in August 2022. Payment was made in advance. Some funds were apparently transferred abroad. However, the SBU said no arms were ever provided, with some funds then moved to other foreign accounts. So, yeah, one to one to watch there. It continues the the crackdown on uh, on corruption through the system with a focus on on the Ministry of Defence there. Um, and just finally, one thing I've been trying to bottom out at the moment, I've, I've seen a report that says Ukraine's parliament is going to introduce mandatory military training that appears to be modelled after the Swiss type of system of having a ready reserve in the civilian population. The report I've seen said that all Ukrainian males aged 18 to 25 would undergo three months of basic training, followed by two months of specialised training, technical training. I've not been able to verify that elsewhere. So so just hold that thought for now. Treat with caution until proved otherwise. But I thought I'd bring that to you as I thought that was a that was an interesting addition to this debate about where where the age for mobilisation should sit. At the moment it's at 27, but there's a lot of calls that that should be lowered and that the exemptions for those that don't, that are allowed to continue in other other areas of economic activity and not register or join up, that those exemptions should be narrowed. But uh, more on that as I find it, David. Well, thank you very much, Dom Nichols. Francis Durney, let's go to you next. What's taken your eye in the diplomatic and political arenas? Thanks, David. For the past week or so, we've reported extensively on the shifting political position of Hungary with regard to Ukraine and NATO, granting Sweden's accession to the latter and agreeing a formal trip by Viktor Orban to the former. We speculated about what kind of backdoor deals may be taking place within the EU to enable this shift, which includes potentially the unblocking of the EU's 50 billion dollar aid package for Kyiv and whether it may perhaps involve some kind of agreement to open up blocked funds to Hungary in exchange. Well, a different perspective has emerged this morning with the Financial Times leading on the EU drawing up plans to cripple Hungary's economy if it blocks that aid package at a Brussels summit this week. This is a significant story and as such Joe is going to cover it shortly in detail. It'd be interesting to hear what he's hearing among his diplomatic sources. This gets to the heart of the central challenge the EU faces when dealing with members that go against prevailing orthodoxy on defence or other matters. Does one punish and risk further inflammation within that country or does one try to smooth things over? Suffice to say, threats often backfire, as we saw during the Brexit saga here in Britain. It is noteworthy that Ukraine and Hungary's foreign ministers have met for talks in Ukraine today, though no doubt they will be fielding some challenging questions from journalists following this report. But as I say, more on that from Joe imminently. Staying in Central and Eastern Europe, two hard-right leaders in Romania and Hungary have publicly claimed Ukrainian land as belonging to their respective countries. A bit of a niche story, this, but interesting, I think. So the co-leader of the Alliance for the Union of Romanians said Romania should reunite with Moldova and Ukrainian border regions. And the leader of 
the Our Homeland Party, also claimed that Zakopatia region, where 150,000 ethnic Hungarians live, said that that should become part of Hungary if Russia annexes Ukraine after the war. To quote him, if this war ends up with Ukraine losing its statehood, because this is also on the cards, then as the only Hungarian party taking position, let me signal that we lay claim to Transcarpathia. Now, I emphasise and stress, these are fringe voices within these respective countries. But nevertheless, I do think it shows another point that is often forgotten, namely that the longer this war is allowed to continue, the longer Ukrainian territory is contested, then the more likely it is to see this kind of dialogue becoming frequent. And it goes without saying that if a world where borders can be contested by force is effectively mandated by Russian successes, then that opens the door to other nations and voices within nations to begin vocalising their own claims to neighbours' territory in a way that would have been considered futile previously. Now, moving on, since EU frictions are a theme of today's episode, I was very interested in some snippets from an interview with former British Prime Minister Liz Truss, who was Foreign Secretary much of the invasion period in the beginning, regarding the behaviour of Emmanuel Macron in the early months of the invasion. So this is for a BBC documentary, and she said that Britain was angered by the mixed messages to Putin that were happening as a result of Macron picking up the phone to him. She said Downing Street was left frustrated by his insistence on keeping negotiations open with the Russian leader. Listeners will, of course, recall that the French president carried on holding those phone calls with Putin long after other NATO countries had cut ties with the Kremlin over the war. Truss says she felt it sent out very mixed messages about the West's resolve. Now, we've discussed this in the past and defenders of Macron have been keen to emphasise that Zelensky himself told Macron to try and keep a dialogue open with Putin in the early days of the war. But there were many critics who said that he tried to keep the dialogue open for longer than was necessary or helpful to Kiev and including Ukrainian voices said that as well. This remains an open discussion point, one for the historians, as I often say. But I do find this quite interesting that we're hearing it now and we're hearing these kind of backdoor conversations being made come to the surface. And in that vein, Boris Johnson is also interviewed in the documentary and reveals that there was a deep institutional guilt within NATO that it had not put Ukraine on the path to membership earlier. He said that the military alliance's dithering over whether Kyiv would be allowed to join had been a fatal error. To quote him, if NATO had followed through on the things that it had said and actually put the Ukrainians on a proper path to membership, there's no argument that to say that Putin would not have done what he did. It was our collective ambiguity for so long, endlessly sucking and blowing at the same time, that was so fatal because Putin thought, right, well, they're not serious. Johnson also lifts the lid on conversations he had with Ben Wallace, of course, the then Defence Secretary, about Ukraine's plea for a NATO-enforced no-fly zone. Remember us discovering, discussing sorry, that in depth on the podcast at length at the time. He said that Britain and other Western allies had been unable to agree to the request because they were warned it could start World War III. Ben Wallace was very clear that it would mean me giving orders or him giving orders to our pilots to shoot down Russian fast jets. 
Now, speaking of World War Three, many listeners, I'm sure, will have seen over the weekend Donald Trump said Joe Biden had left the globe on the path to such a conflict after that drone attack on a base in Jordan that killed three U.S. troops. The former president rounded on his successor in a tirade following that incident on Sunday, with the White House blaming it on Iran-backed militants operating in the Middle East. Trump said this brazen attack on the U.S. is yet another horrific and tragic consequence of Biden's weakness and surrender. Three years ago, Iran was weak, broke and totally under control. Thanks to my maximum pressure policy, the Iranian regime could barely scrape two dollars together to fund their terrorist proxies. He then accused Mr. Biden of giving Iran billions of dollars, which he said had been used by Tehran to spread bloodshed and carnage throughout the Middle East. This attack would never have happened if I was president, not even a chance. Just like the Iranian-backed Hamas attack on Israel would never have happened, the war in Ukraine would never have happened. Now, I mention this here because it is yet another example of Western leaders openly talking about global conflict as being a conceivable possibility. I would posit the allowing of the war in Ukraine to continue by not giving everything Kyiv it needs to win has led to a spillover with hugely destabilising consequences for the current world order. And we are now seeing that articulated time and time again since the beginning of 2024. In part, that may be due to the number of elections taking place this year, a subject we've already discussed, some two billion people going to the polls this year. And inevitably, politicians are going to be talking about the threats posed to citizens as a result. But nevertheless, I do think this is very, very revealing about the state of anxiety amongst leaders at the moment as a result of what is seen as a heightened tension on the geopolitical stage. Now, in the context of the debate about the future of American support in the European theatre, which is hugely relevant to that, of course, I was quite struck by Zelensky's remarks over the weekend with the German TV channel that Europe will likely not be able to support Ukraine financially and militarily if the US were to significantly reduce its aid. That is a remarkable admission and one that will put the fear of God into European leaders if they truly believe, as so many have articulated, that their own security is tied to Ukraine. Zelensky confirming there, which I think many of them will fear in private. Now, just speaking of Zelensky to wrap up, it's interesting that he has published details of his income as part of the anti-corruption drive Don mentioned earlier. He said his family earned £76,000 in 2022 and and has called for public officials to disclose their own incomes as part of transparency efforts. He said his income had declined from £225,000, which is about $280,000 in 2021, and half a million pounds in 2020 because the war had reduced rental income from properties that he owns. Now, I'm not intimate enough with Zelensky's previous financial statements to know whether these figures are accurate, but the fact that he's doing this is revealing in and of itself as he continues to wage that war of tackling corruption in the country, which, of course... The consequences of corruption widely seen as hampering Western efforts in providing whole-scale support to Kyiv. And just lastly, no surprises here, but Putin has just registered as a presidential candidate for Russia's March elections, officially putting himself forward. Supporters and opponents alike expect him, of course, to stroll to a new six-year term, which, if he completes, would make him Russia's longest-serving ruler since the 18th century. But again, I would argue that whether that is allowed to happen, still remains very much 
in our hands. Well, thank you very much, Dom and Francis, for your thoughts and reporting there. Joe Barnes, welcome back to the podcast. Can you take us through a little bit more in, into this into this story on Hungary and the EU? Could you lay out what we think is going on and, and how important this might be? Yeah, hi, folks. Um, welcome from the uh, I'm at the European Council building, what's known as the General Affairs Council, which is Europe ministers come together and meet the four big European summits. And this is where this story is broken before. And the idea is... Um, Apparently, the European Union has drawn up plans to cripple Hungary's economy if it blocks a 50 billion euro aid package for Ukraine um, at a Brussels summit on Thursday. So EU officials have apparently proposed targeting Budapest's economy by attempting to trigger a run on the country's foreign currency and collapse investor confidence to hit jobs and growth. This was all part of a what the Financial Times cited as a confidential document drawn up ahead of that leader's meeting. So the reason that it comes up is Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, vetoed a plan to shore up Ukraine's economy over the next four years at a summit in December last year, and he has once again vowed to block it again, urgency gathering on Thursday. This is an excerpt from the document, so I quote, In the case of no agreement in the February 1 summit, other heads of state and government will publicly declare that in the light of the unconstructive behaviour of the Hungarian PM, they cannot imagine that, and then this is where we end the quote, but they're basically alluding to EU funds should be provided to Budapest. So financial markets and European international companies might be less interested to invest in Hungary if funding is blocked, the document states. Essentially, this punishment, the document says, would trigger a further increase of the cost of funding of the public deficit and a drop in the currency. So this plan was essentially apparently drawn up by an official in the European Council, which represents the bloc's 27 member states ahead of the summit. It suggests Hungary is particularly vulnerable to economic threats because it's very high public deficit, very high inflation and a weak currency and as well as being uh, the EU's having the EU's highest level of debt repayments in proportion to uh, gross domestic product. So the, that on the face of it sounds like a very extraordinary threat from the EU to Hungary, but delving slightly deeper into it. So they have a body called co-repair, which is every so 27 EU members have a national ambassador to the EU, which represents them on the day-to-day running of sort of the EU and discussions of national interest. It's not been discussed there. What we have managed to garner is um, a CEU EU official has told a group of journalists basically asking this, that the document cited by the Financial Times was an, not an official plan. They instead called it a background note, which was produced without the consent from any of the member states. So this is what the official had to say. The note does not outline any specific plan relating to the MFF, which is the EU's budget, and the Ukraine facility, which is this 50 billion euro scheme, nor does it outline any plan relating to Hungary. So the document instead was produced by the European Council Secretariat and was not in line with the course of action of negotiations over the Ukrainian aid plan, that's according to the EU spokeswoman. So basically, it's all starting to unravel. We suspect that the, the plan was instead back of a fag packet scribbles. And basically, it was a load of... So every national government basically has a economic assessment done of them, which is held by the EU, and they keep that updated. And I'm sure people are having discussions about potential flashpoints in the negotiations over this and potential leverage they have. And I'm sure it's probably, say, rather than being a high-level document, it's just a discussion paper that was between one, if not two officials, who sit on the Secretariat of the European Council, which is basically just the 
the secretarial service made up of official drafting notes constantly. So other people have described it to me as that's a slight spin on reality. Um, not many people claim to have seen the document that I've spoken to and basically have said it's probably a bit suspicious. One uh, source I spoke to suggested that while there is a lot of frustration around Hungary's anti-Ukrainian position, which is Hungary is definitely an outlier in that, there is no chance they would see the EU machinery turning on a member state because essentially that goes against the idea of having an EU club. And yeah, what's the point of having an EU if suddenly the whole EU turns against one of its members? So it's meant to corral, while it, while it might not agree with everyone, it will try and corral them in the right direction. But going back to this, why is the debate happening? Is because there are many plans on the table about what leverage, what could be done to overcome Hungary's veto. I know, I think Francis spoke about this the other day. One of the plans being drawn up is to use Article 7, which is the EU's basically clause in its treaties that can withdraw voting rights in the sort of event of a member state breaking the EU's rules so substantially. And Hungary is under various investigations over its deterioration of democratic standards, over judicial independency, etc., so it could use this Article 7. Then there's another Plan B, which I've discussed several times, and that's instead of 50 billion euros done on an EU level, you would take it to the 26 consenting member states and they would do an intergovernmental agreement. It would likely be 20 billion euros in cheap loans for Ukraine in 2024 to keep its economy afloat. But that comes with lots of sort of caveats of it being incredibly difficult to do. It would face uh, various parliamentary votes in each member state. It wouldn't be as secure as using the... Uh, using the uh, EU machinery, and it also wouldn't be as cheap because you would basically have to find some new instrument to go to the international markets and say, we want to borrow 20 billion. So interest repayments would be slightly more expensive. But I think there's also, as a portion I alluded to earlier, is like you have to remember that the EU isn't going to, while it supports Ukraine greatly, it's not going to bite its own nose off and spite its face, etc., um, to help a country that isn't a member state yet. So Ukraine might be, close to joining it's been offered official accession talks etc but it isn't the european member states they're not going to find themselves really in a situation where they are openly and brazenly attacking their own sort of members in support of a another third party but th there are some sort of instances we can look back to so in, there's an article online on the telegraph my interpretation of this all so as i said article seven is deemed to be too extreme for a lot of member states they probably wouldn't go about taking hungary's voting rights away but Brussels has often used diplomatic threats against member states, including against Hungary and Poland before, in disputes over rule of law, and Greece during the Eurozone crisis. They basically forced Greece for a austerity package in exchange for bailouts. But it has never gone as far as threatening to crash a member state's economy, basically not falling in line with an EU-wide plan. So I think it's very interesting. But ultimately, I'm getting the getting that basically Hungary isn't taking these threats seriously. So Balash Orban, who is no relation to Viktor Orban, but is his political director, said, Brussels is using blackmail against Hungary like there's no tomorrow, despite the fact we have proposed a compromise. Now, it's crystal clear this black is this is blackmail and has nothing to do with the rule of law, and now they're not trying to hide it. And that refers back to the European Commission has frozen, or it had frozen around 30 billion euros in funding to Budapest, which were basically over fears of democratic deterioration in the country. It released 10 billion euros of that cash ahead of the summit in December, basically in hope that it would help unblock Victor Orban's veto, but that was unsuccessful. Um, so Hungary has apparently, and it has been putting forward compromises 
and it is I've reported on this before that it's gone it has gone to the EU, EU states its sort of colleagues and said look we might let the funding package through now we'd let the EU borrow money on the financial markets we'd let the EU use the uh, MFF which is the EU's overall budget its joint budget to fund this Ukrainian package but we need some sort of lever that we can pull in the future so maybe a review point in a year's time that will cease funding to Ukraine if we have concerns over it and basically trigger a new discussion. So basically, it looks like Victor Orban. I think this will probably be the way the EU goes or fold now, so it gives Ukraine some money, but basically hand him a veto at a later date over the plan. I'm sure the EU won't like it because, again, it doesn't provide stability for Ukraine like they're trying to achieve, but it does open up a possibility for getting a positive response when they meet for this emergency summit on Thursday. And I will open up to any questions if anyone has any. Thanks, Joe. Just a quick one from me. What is your sense with regarding Hungary's moving position? Is it because of a weakening of the EU position and Hungary responding to that? Or do you think it's more that actually Hungary is responding to threats being made by the EU? Which side is moving here? Uh, Yeah, interesting question. I suspect it is a little bit of both. Hungary, especially Viktor Orban, has always used his sort of EU bashing credentials to further his domestic position amongst domestic voters who sometimes aren't actually that interested in the EU. Often he speaks, I, I, I remember during the Brexit negotiations, he once entered the, um, so to, for some context, when EU leaders arrive at summits, they often do these doorstep interviews with their national broadcasters, as well as they'll read out their sort of own domestically agreed statements then they'll take a few questions. And I remember someone asked Victor Orban about why don't you help get Theresa May at the time a fairer Brexit deal? And he gave this big spiel about how he was such a great admirer of Margaret Thatcher when he studied at, I think, Oxford University, how he would battle and fight to get a, make sure Britain got a fair deal, Brexit deal. And then he went into the room and he didn't actually say anything in the private discussions with EU leaders. So what you get from Victor Orban is often very brash, brazen public statements but often they're not followed through with sort of the the um the back room wrangling and and deals and yes look he, he did veto it last time and i'm sure there has been a concerted air a bit of pressure on him lots of people are saying is like they're saying look i haven't seen the document that as cited by the ft but what i can tell you is people are reaching the end of their temple with hungary now and it's starting to become a concern they are looking at sort of various whether it be options or like, and I suspect this is where it's quite come from, it's sort of a very much a, an off-the-cuff remark or plan of what could be done uh, to bring Hungary on, on in line. But what you're getting is, so, so that, yes, there's probably a bit of pressure, but Hungary also is doing it for its own domestic gain. Like Victor Orban standing up to the EU is, is good for his sort of domestic voter base. It's, plus it, as, as, it, as it happened, it helped them unlock 10 billion in funds uh, ahead of the last summit, which then caused ripples amongst sort of the European parliaments and various member states who were saying, actually, Hungary isn't applying, hasn't actually done made any changes or hasn't applied the rules any better than when we agreed to block the funds. So Victor Orban, on one hand, he's not actually as feisty as he is in public when it comes to backdoor compensation, but he's also using them to his advantage to get concessions out out of, uh, out of the EU. So yes, a little bit of both. It's kind of, I guess, I rub your back, you rub mine. And I, I do suspect that he's going to fold, but he will have some sort of concession that he will be able to take home and basically say that I have not been defeated, I've got my own way. So if we look back to when the um, Ukraine, the Ukrainian EU accession decision was made, 
Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, suggested that Viktor Orban could leave the room to not have to vote, but then he could also go back to his domestic voter base and say, hang on, this vote was done without me. I'm having our sovereignty challenged. But essentially, he nodded through the process without being in the room because he agreed to leave in the end. So it, it's all a bit of sort of Fugazi, Fugazi, and I suspect Victor Orban will fold eventually, just like he did with the Swedish NATO discussions the other day. He, um, after Turkey decided that it was going to ratify the uh, Swedish accession protocol for its parliament, Victor Orban put out a tweet and said, I've sent a letter to the Swedish government suggesting that we sit down for negotiations over Sweden's entry to NATO. So Sweden and Hungary have a fairly terrible relationship on an EU level. But apparently this actual, the private letter was very much short of his public threats to suggest uh, that he might veto uh, Sweden's accession without without negotiations. And then soon after, Jens Stoltenberg got on the phone to him and he put out going, oh, look, I'm going to do everything I can to fast track Sweden's accession through the Hungarian parliament. So he's not, as, he's not sort of the, the lion or the tiger. He's probably more of a soft teddy bear when it comes to... Uh, the private discussions, but I'll stop there, folks. Uh, Joe, uh, Domhead, a quickie for me, if I may, a seasoned Brussels watcher that you are, where would you say the EU is, all the component parts of what we collectively call it, the EU, where is the EU as a as a global, a, a diplomatic actor here? I'm thinking the old phrase, diplomacy is talk softly, carry a big stick. It, as far as I'm aware, and I'm not as close to it as you, clearly, but the EU has n- never been known to be that this provocative or this confrontational they seem to be a little bit they'll they'll do anything for a quiet life whereas this sounds like they've grown a pair they've actually come up to Auburn and said right now we're going to call you out on that and and that that to me is unusual is is have I got it wrong have they taken this or much more bullish approach before and we've just not remarked upon it or they are they starting to find the feet is the EU finding its feet as a player in its own right with all the sort of barbs and the being able to stand up for um, you know against some fairly punchy characters that that, that entails. Uh, yeah, no, interesting. I suspect that it's so. Actually, like the EU has undergone a pretty massive transformation since since COVID in terms of becoming a more integrated system. It's, but Ukraine and the Russian invasion has really focused minds, I think, and they look at sort of European security on on becoming a European Union issue. So we always talk about EU armies and stuff, but they are starting, which while I think an EU army is generally sort of still a bit of a far-fetched, like a genuine EU force under the sort of Brussels banner is still a, well, there are sort of offshoots of there's going to be an EU naval mission in the Red Sea. There is a There are EU military exercises. So people under an EU banner help train Ukrainian troops in Germany. But I think... Here it falls on this hungry issue, falls a bit halfway house. There are some punchy characters who are willing to are willing to, yeah, to to draft ideas, come up with ideas like this one that's in the FT. But also, I think when the machinery gets into gear, so like when I was talking about this senior EU official basically saying, look, I think the FT have got it wrong to a certain extent, um, which is quite rare. They uh, um, There seems to be basically, are they trying to pour cold water on an idea that is basically against the idea of the EU. It's a club where it protects its own members. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, there are definitely some punchier people. I think people are willing to be punchier. So, like, the uh, the Poles and the Eastern Europeans have played it really, really well. They've become massive players and they're able to influence discussions, especially when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, because they basically said, look, we've lived under the Soviet Union for many years and we don't want that to return. So let's, let's focus our minds. They've taken a lot of a lot of that power. So it's interesting, but I, I still suspect the EU lacks 
the genuine teeth to really take down one of its own member states if it feels like it's not in the strategic uh, that's all they're, they're in Hungary in this case the Hungary's um, area of sort of interest on in the strategic interests of the wider EU so I think the EU still lacks teeth there but it is doing a lot of interesting stuff and people are willing to speak out a bit more which you probably wouldn't have got over the years. Well, thank you very much, Dom, Francis and Joe. Before we go to our final thoughts then, Francis, you've got one more update for us. Thanks, David. I just want to briefly mention another big story this morning, which is that Tatiana Standovka, a Latvian member of the European Parliament, has been outed as an alleged agent of Russian intelligence for at least 20 years, based on emails between her and her FSB handlers, according to an investigation by The Insider. Ms. Zandovka had spent decades openly advocating for Moscow from both Riga and Strasbourg, and the insider argues she was working on behalf of the FSB's Fifth Service, reporting to two different handlers from at least 2004 to 2017. As it writes, leaked emails between her and her known Russian case officers include explicit detailed reports from her to her handlers describing her work as a European legislator, particularly as those official duties relate to fostering pro-Kremlin sentiment in her native Baltic region. Other correspondence involves arranging physical meetings in Moscow or Brussels between her and her Russian handler, along with requests for funding from Russian sources to underwrite her political activities in Latvia and the European Parliament. At least once she requested money for organising a rally to commemorate the Red Army's victory in World War II. Now, in an emailed response to the insider, Miss Dandovka stated, I cannot consider this text to be questions put to me because it is based on information that you supposedly have, which, by definition, you should not have. Now, the relevance of this to Ukraine is, as the piece highlights, in 2014, she travelled to Crimea to serve as an international observer in the illegitimate referendum that paved the way for Russia's illegal annexation of the Ukrainian peninsula. Two years later, in 2016, she travelled to Syria, where she held talks with Bashir al-Assad. At the time of the MEP's visit to Damascus, Russia's direct military intervention was already propping up the Assad regime in the struggle for survival against Western-backed rebel forces. The European Parliament refused to pay for her travel, as Assad and his entourage were under EU sanctions. But unsurprisingly, she was one of only 13 MEPs who voted against the European Parliament's resolution condemning Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Now, we've spoken about Russian spy networks in Europe for many months now, but this is, I think, among, if not the most prominent example that we've seen. The Russia expert Jeremy Morris writes that he's been somewhat reassured by how quote, amateurish and almost pathetic, the FSB comes across in the report, saying it once more undermines the narrative among the usual pundit suspects about the nature of Russian spycraft. Certainly, this doesn't seem to be the most subtle operation. I think a lot of people have had questions about her for a very, very long time indeed. The KGB of yore would weep. But I do think this is still worrying. After all, we've seen numerous examples in the European context of very narrow votes having very profound influences on the direction of travel on certain key issues. And I would posit that it should always be a cause of anxiety when you see politicians being manipulated by foreign agents and foreign powers. This should be a scandal. And I think we should very much pay attention to these kind of stories and not just dismiss them out of hand as being something that we don't be surprised by. We should be surprised by them.
when we enable this kind of behaviour, it erodes trust in democratic processes and ultimately erodes the very democracies that are being defended right now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, listeners. As you may know, and if you don't, now you do, the Ukraine The Latest team is doing a live podcast recording at the American Embassy in London on the 15th of February. Myself, Dom and Francis will be joined by some fascinating guests and tickets will be available to Telegraph subscribers. So if you want to come, become a subscriber. Tickets will be available at 9am on the 31st of January GMT. Subscribers, if you miss out on a ticket to the event itself or you don't live in London, will also be able to watch the event live. And of course, we'll put out a video of the event on our channels in the days following the recording. Now, back to the episode. Dom Nichols, let's go to you first for your final thought. Sure, thank you. So we were talking a moment ago about diplomacy and Sweden joining NATO and all the, all the rest of it. So something on that, just as a quick background, you'll remember Recep Per Tayyip Erdogan, Turkey's president, originally objected to Sweden's application to join NATO, accused Stockholm of supporting Kurdish separatist organisations that Ankara said were terrorist groups. Sweden responded by tightening anti-terror laws, making other security concessions demanded by Turkey. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then Mr. Erdogan demanded the US fulfil the pledge to deliver a tranche of F-16 fighters that had been bogged down in Congress. Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, refused to hand over the jets unless Turkey approved Sweden joining NATO. So big old diplomatic spat. Well, now the US has approved the $23 billion deal to sell F-16 fighters to Turkey after Turkey has backed Sweden's accession to NATO. So Turkey's parliament voted to ratify uh, membership on uh, last week after uh, delaying the decision for over a year. So they're now going to get 40 new F-16s and upgrades for the 79 uh, jets it's already got. And then in an interesting statement, the US Defense Security Cooperation Agency said... These new and refurbished aircraft will provide Turkey 
with a fleet of modernised multi-role combat aircraft to enable it to provide for the defence of its airspace, contribute to NATO missions and preserve regional security and defend NATO allies. So everyone's pals, right? But the point there, defend NATO allies. So this 23 billion, OK, a nice, a nice, little, a nice little arms deal, nice bit of percentage for the you know, commission for whoever sorted that out. 23 billion to defend NATO allies. So clearly there's a threat here that's been identified, a threat that's been recognised. You know, what is it? Where is it? Where does it it come from? The answer is obviously Russia. And therefore, if this is being lauded, or if they're actually citing defending NATO allies against this, this, this threat, they don't name the threat, obviously, but, you know, clearly it's Russia, then why can't objections be overcome to the Ukrainian aid package that's got bogged down in Congress, much of which, like the 23 billion here, will stay inside the United States on arms spending. And I know, I know it's all, you know, the reason it's all bogged down, it's wrapped up in politics about the southern border. But if the objection argument can so easily be demolished when taken head on about, is there a threat? Yes. Should we do something about it? Yes, we should. Right. Well, if it can be demolished so easily on when taken on just on its individual merits or otherwise why is that zombie allowed just to just keep stumbling on why can't the u.s find a way around around it divorce it from the southern border thing which i know at the time an aid to israel looked like a brilliant way of getting it through congress and has just fallen fallen flat but the, the argument as to why you need to spend money that most of which will stay, stay in the united states to supply Ukraine with arms and ammunition, why it is so difficult to make the case that that is of direct relevance to defending NATO allies, preserving regional security, I do not know. And I'm just looking for a bit of leadership here from the US, from the Biden administration, to get this thing through. Elizabeth Braw, um, brilliant beefy brain box, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. We should all be following her, if not already. She said it's been extraordinary to watch the US spend considerable political capital to help Sweden join NATO. And I just wonder, I just hope that the Biden administration will use similar political capital to unlock the, the nearly 60 billion for Ukraine. I just don't understand why it's why it's still stumbling on, why, why it's not such an easy argument to knock down. Thank you, David. Thank you very much, Dom. Francis Stanley, can we come to you next? Thanks, David. Just a very brief one from me, a very interesting piece in the Financial Times by Christopher Miller. It's called The Last Russia-Ukraine Border Crossing. It's about Krasnopilya in the northeast of Ukraine and how it's become an escape route for those fleeing Russian-occupied regions. Now, as we discussed recently, getting information out from the Russian-occupied regions is a challenge. There is a lot more going on in those places than I think is publicly publicly, publicly understood, uh, not least with regard to uh, operations against the Russians being conducted by uh, resistance, as it were. But even hearing about the experience of people in these places is quite difficult. And we hear several testimonies in this piece, which is why I recommend it. To quote from it, one woman describes how Russian soldiers threatened to withhold bread and drinking water unless she agreed to take Russian citizenship. A couple come from Kahovka, a city just two miles upriver from the dam destroyed by Russian forces last June, say Moscow's occupation authorities warned residents of their town that if they didn't get a Russian passport, they would be evicted from their homes. Another couple heard about the border crossing through word of mouth and found the Telegram channel where they could ask volunteers questions and get tips from others who made the journey. There were thousands 
of messages asking for advice, such as how to get through Russian checkpoints without being detained. I told the Russians we were going to visit my sick sister, one man tells uh, Mr Miller. The Russians bought this excuse but still gave them a hard time because both he and his wife were members of the Ukrainian Army Reserve. Eventually, they crossed the border with little money, few possessions and no idea where the road would take them. When they caught sight of the Ukrainian flag on the side of the bus that would pick them up, they were unable to hold back their tears. So just an interesting insight on life in Russian-occupied territories, which I think are always worth reporting when we hear from them. Thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Joe Barnes, would you like to finish today's episode? Interestingly, the European Council has rolled over its sanctions on Russia and Belarus for another six months. So that would take us through to July the 31st this year. What's interesting is the EU seems to be doing it on a six-monthly basis, where Britain has legislated to... um, to basically keep sanctions in place until Russia pays reparations and damages to Ukraine for its invasion. So it just goes to show how difficult it is on an EU level, which requires 27 countries to vote in the same direction, is how difficult it is for them to get things through. So I'm sure many countries, like you look at the Poles, the Eastern Europeans, the Baltics, etc., would love to keep sanctions in place until reparations are paid, but they just can't do that because they have to battle through and come up with build consensus amongst 27 member states rather than Britain, who's been very, as it, on a sole operator, sole actor, has been able to be very nimble and say, you know what, until Russia pays pays some damages, we won't remove sanctions on it. So yeah, some interesting sorts of ideas and thinking about how different power blocks can act compared to different countries themselves. But uh, I'll leave you there, folks. Thanks for listening. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, a world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.